Good morning. It is a joy to gather with my brothers and sisters in Christ this morning. Some of you I know, some of you I know better, some of you I don't know at all. Um, But since we are going to be reading the Word of God, will you stand with me in honor of the reading of His Word? Our text this morning will be Psalm 73. We're going to read the full chapter. Um, This is the Word of the Lord for us this morning. Truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled, my steps had nearly slipped, for I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked, for they have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek, and they are not in trouble as others are. They are not stricken like the rest of mankind. Therefore, pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as a garment. Their eyes swell out through fatness. Their hearts overflow with follies. They scoff and speak with malice. Loftily, they threaten oppression. They set their mouths against the heavens and their tongue struts through the earth. Therefore, his people turn back to them and find no fault in them. And they say, how can God know? Is there knowledge in the Most High? Behold, these are the wicked, always at ease. They increase in riches. All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. For all the day long I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. If I had said, I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task until I went to the sanctuary of God, and then I discerned their end. Truly, you set them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly, by terrors. Like a dream when one awakes, O Lord, when you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. When my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast towards you. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel, and afterward you will receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. But for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge that I may tell all of your works. Well, what an appropriate song for this morning's message. And I ask this question to begin. Is anyone here this morning discouraged, disillusioned, doubting, questioning, struggling with anger, envious, Bitter. Perhaps you're thinking to yourself, even this morning, I have no reason to get up in the morning. 
Maybe you're struggling with jealousy toward people who seem to do whatever they please in life, and yet all seems to go well with them. And maybe deep down you're not willing or comfortable to admit it, but maybe in reality you're really angry with God. You think to yourself, how can he say that he, that he loves me? Is this the abundant life that I've been told about, that I've read about, the abundant life that he promises? I really thought that this life, and that he was faithful to meet all my needs. And look at me, here I am, with nothing. I can't read my Bible hardly anymore. I can't pray. I can't make it through a church service without becoming angry. I look at my own life and I look at the promises of Scripture and they don't seem to line up. When it gets down to it, I don't think I'm any better than the average non-Christian. And have you ever thought like that? I know I have at times in my life. But what's going on here is a crucial gap in our thinking. And one that's far too common even among Christians. You know, many really struggle to make biblical sense out of their life. And the critical missing perspective in our thinking is that perspective of the eternity. We don't live in light of eternity. You know, regardless of what our theology says most of us have a functional view of life that lacks any real sense of eternity. It's impossible to understand what God is doing or to biblically respond in a Christ-like way to the troubles and trials of this life when eternity has been factored out of the equation. You know, life looks radically different when viewed from eternity perspective. You know, God's words and work are understood very differently. And that brings us to Psalm 73. And it demonstrates the importance of viewing life from the perspective of eternity. I have preached this message before in the past, and we have so many new people over the years that we thought it would be beneficial to hear again. It's one of those things you hear at once, but you can certainly hear again and put it into practice. Uh, when I was doing my graduate work at Masters, uh, this is one of the things that really impacted me the most in the studies. And I want to give a lot of the credit to Paul David Tripp, who did a lot of the legwork on this psalm. I have benefited immensely from this. Uh, and I use this more in the biblical counseling, discipleship, perhaps really than any other portion of Scripture. Uh, just keep coming back to it repeatedly. And I promise you, if you can grasp the truth contained in God's word this morning from Psalm 73, you will leave here a different person. And you will live your life differently than when you walk through the door this morning. Well, this psalm, Psalm 73, provides practical directives to be used. It's just not a theological theory. sitting around and talking out of a textbook. This is applied theology that we can live different. We can feel different. We can look at life 
differently. We can look at life biblically. Well, let me begin by mentioning two background factors that shape how we understand the Holy Spirit's purpose in this psalm as he wrote through Asaph. First, the context of Psalm 73. Asaph describes an experience that all of us have had at one time or another. You know, we look around the world, we look around at the circumstances, and it seems like people who don't know or don't care anything about living for God or living for His glory, they're not concerned with living life in obedience to God's law. In many ways, they simply live selfish, arrogant lives. They seem to be enjoying, you know, life that is free of any burdens. Meanwhile, believers, we look and suffer around the world. Who of us at some point hasn't stepped back and wondered? And you're thinking to yourself, and maybe you've said it out loud, is God really good to his people? Are his promises sure and trustworthy? Then how do I biblically develop my worldview to understand the apparent success of the wicked and the suffering of the righteous? How do I square those two things in everyday living? And Psalm 73 speaks directly to this critical question. And it provides us practical directives for us as we minister to people who are struggling to understand their circumstances. Well, secondly, remember that Psalm 73 is a psalm. It's a poem. It's a a song about life's most significant relationships, and that is our relationship with God. That's what Asaph is addressing here. You know, and if you look at the Psalms, you got the whole wide range of expression of the soul is exposed. From joy and peace to confusion and anger, as writers of those Psalms under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, they're responding to God in the middle of life circumstances. And specifically, this psalm, Psalm 73, is a lament. And here in great distress, the psalmist cries out for God's help. And as he does, his confusion, his doubt, the fear, his envy, his anger, they're they're all revealed. And psalms such as this one bring balance, if you will, to the way we think about God's blessings, as promised in other portions of Scripture. They expose ways in which rejoice always, that we're told, or God is in control, can become nothing more than numbing platitudes that don't seem to have any real concrete grip in our life, in our way of thinking, in our way of living And they're not deep-seated confidence that we have in our God at times. And the laments cause our relationship with God to to be honest. You know, we can fool one another, but we can't fool God. He knows our motives, the intentions of our hearts. He knows our deep desires. And these things confront us with our own struggle to understand the the mysteries of God's goodness and the mysteries of His providence in our own lives. They bring a humble integrity to the way 
that we share his promises with those who are suffering. Well, Psalm 73 models honesty regarding the struggles of our souls. And it models the process that leads to resolution and and a real inner comfort and, and peace that the world does not understand. It it teaches us how to know God. Well, let's let's look at this psalm this morning as it teaches us how to view life from the perspective of eternity. And I want to work through this psalm section by section. Uh, the first section I want to look at is examine our focus. And next, I wanted to examine our conclusions and then viewing life from the perspective of eternity and finally focus on the eternal riches of redemption that we have in Jesus Christ. Well, first, let's begin by examining our focus. And let me read again, as Jared previously read, Psalm 73, verses 1 through 12. And you can follow along in the Word of God with me. Surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost slipped. I had nearly lost my foothold. For I envied the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. They have no struggles. Their bodies are healthy and strong. They are free from burdens, common demand. They're they're not plagued by human ills. Therefore, pride is their necklace. They clothe themselves with violence. From their callous hearts comes iniquity, and evil conceits of their minds know no limits. They scoff and they speak with malice in their arrogance. They threaten oppression. Their mouths lay claim to heaven, and their tongues take possession of the earth. Therefore, their, their people turn to them and drink up waters in abundance. And they say, how can God know? <laughs> Does the Most High have knowledge? This is what the wicked are like, always carefree. They increase in wealth. You know, many of us interpret God's goodness on the basis of the level of the present temporal, personal happiness that we're experiencing day to day. And our view of happiness has to do with the things that are physical, external, and immediate. That's how we are by nature. Well, as we're looking at the focus, where where are our eyes? Are they one on the created things of this world? Are they on our own personal happiness in the physical world of the observable reality? Is that what's really real? The five senses? Well, one, we focus on the created things. I I do this. I'm preaching to myself this morning. I've got to do this regularly. You know, the tendency that we have is to define life as having to do with possessing and experiencing the created things. And that goes right to the heart of the struggle with sin. When we wake up each and every morning and face the day, think of Romans one twenty-five, where Paul writes under the inspiration of the Spirit, they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshipped and served the created thing rather than the Creator. Most of us do that to some degree each and every day. And the operative word here in that verse that Paul wrote is exchanged. And we tend to exchange God for His creation. 
And in so doing, we define the abundant life, if you will, as a happy, present experience of created things. Hey, the car's running great. The house doesn't need to be painted. The garbage disposal's working. My bank account looks pretty good today. I'm happy. Also, means of physical health. You know, I don't have any ailments today. Friendships, our families, financial success, or a sense of emotional well-being. Through all these things, and not necessarily bad in and of themselves, but our, our focus tends to slip away from the Creator. And we focus on the created things. We, we exchange His plan and purpose for the created blessings in life. And we exchange the giver for the gift. There's whole church theologies built upon that. Attract huge crowds for that kind of preaching. But that's not the word of God. Asaph struggled with this as he he envied the life of the wicked. They haven't struggled, he said. That's his observation. Their bodies are healthy. They're strong. They're, they're free from the burdens common to man. They're not plagued by human ills. He said, this is what the wicked are like. Always carefree. They increase in wealth. You know, many of us, our desires and our standards are way too low. <laughs> Most of us want little more than just to be happy. That is to enjoy a life of relative ease in the created world. And if we focus on these created things and measure our life by how much of the created things I now possess in experience rather than the work in the person of the Creator, and we're not seeing the work of God, we're not seeing His providence in our lives, it's it's simply not going to make sense. And the ease of the unbeliever is going to be a constant source of discouragement and questioning and doubt. Well, not only are we focused upon created things, we're also, you know, again, present personal happiness is how the standard I'm going to measure these things. What is it that God is working on? What's God doing in my life? What's his goal? What's his eternal plan for each of us? What's his purpose for you and for me? Is it that I would approach the day with a, a big smile because my life's been easy and full of a happy experiences of people, places, and things? What's, what's the good that God is going to do in my life and is doing? What is truly the abundant life that is promised in Scripture? You know, we too easily privatize and temporalize the gospel. We reduce its purpose and its promises to whether or not we currently experience individual happiness. That's what the gospel has become to the modern man and the modern church. We end up losing sight of the grand agenda, the eternal plans of our God laid before the foundations of this earth which is really more about the glory of Christ and the coming of his kingdom than it is about my individual happiness. God's far more interested in our holiness than he is our personal happiness. 
Holiness will lead to a genuine happiness, a peace and content. So the question is, what is God working on? Well, Peter answers that question for us in his second letter. He says there, His divine power has given us everything we need for life and godliness through our knowledge of Him who has called us by His own glory and goodness. Through these He has given us very great and precious promises so that through them you may be participant in the divine nature and escape the corruption in the world caused by evil desires. That's Second Peter chapter 1, verses 3 and following. The chief good that God is doing is to deliver us from our own bondage to our own evil desires. Those are the things that draw me into the corruption of the world. God's at work to radically change you and me at the level of our heart, our inner man, that spiritual aspect. Remember, we're composed of the outer man and we're composed of the inner man. God's given us a new heart through that new covenant. He's changing us at that level. How I live and what fruit I bear. That is the redemptive good and the work that God is doing. He has given me everything I need, everything you need, to live a godly life in the midst of of the situation in which he sovereignly places you each and every day. God's focus and God's purpose is redemptive. It's eternal. And it's spiritual. And to the degree that your focus or my focus is individual, temporal, physical... We're at odds with God. When Peter says that God has given us everything we need, it doesn't mean everything we need to fulfill our own definitions of happiness. You know, the Bible, the Word of God, repeatedly teaches, James, 1 Peter, Romans, that God will put hindrances in our life to produce in us the character of His Son, which He has preordained, that we be conformed to the image of Christ. Well, what about the focus on the external, the visible world out there? You know, and it's it's almost at times like we're comparing our piles of stuff with the assumption that the Christian's pile has got to be bigger than the guy next door's pile of stuff. (laughs) You know, many... We fix our eyes on what can be seen. And our inability to face life in a fallen world is a direct result when our eyes are focused that way. And Paul discussed this in, you know, in 2 Corinthians. And he said, but we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that this all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. We are hard-pressed on every side but not crushed, perplexed but not in despair, persecuted, but not abandoned, struck down, but not destroyed. We always carry around in our body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be revealed in our body. For we who are alive are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake so that his life may be revealed in our mortal body. So then death is at work in us, but it is life that is at work in you. Therefore, 
Therefore, because of these truths and facts, do not lose heart. Though outwardly, we are wasting away the outer man. But the inner man, inwardly, we are being renewed day by day. For our light, does this describe your life? For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs everything else, that eternal perspective. So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen. For what is seen is temporary. It's going to be burned up. But what is unseen is eternal. The true reality. And Paul fixes his eyes not on what can be seen, but what is unseen. And Paul said he learned to be content in whatever circumstances God had placed him. And Paul's not fixing his eyes on the scene because of what God is doing. The weakness that we experience in our bodies, the trials, the loss, the suffering that we face, they're not the result of some divine mistake. They are crucial parts of God's eternal plan. And if I tend to exchange the hope in the Creator for hope in the created thing, then God must draw me away from security and anything else but Him. Well, how does he do that? God has ordained trials for you, and he's ordained trials for me. They're not an accident, but they are the means of his continuing redemptive work in each of us. It is in the middle of these trials that the life of Jesus is revealed. God's at work creating eternal changes at the level of our hearts where our true desires and hopes reside. He's he's drawing me away from the hope in the present world or my bank account or my health to hope in Him alone, to trust in Him alone. He's revealing true life, the true reality to each of us, a life that consists of the all-surpassing power of Christ Jesus living within us. It is no longer I that lives, but Christ that lives in me. And he will use the things of this present world, and often the loss of them, to accomplish his redemptive purposes. God's goal is not the abundance of earthly things, but the abundance of Christ. He is my all in all. He is my life. Well, second, Paul doesn't fix his eyes on what is seen because the world of physical things is passing away. The things that we see, these chairs, this building, they're they're just temporary. Your new car, your nice home, the healthy body of one's youth grows old and weary. The new house begins to creak with age and the plants wither. The world's passing away, we're told. And to hope in the things of this present world is a temporary and futile hope. Oh, it's a waste of time. 
Well, finally, Paul didn't fix his eyes on what is seen because of the reality of eternity. Paul characterizes his life in this fallen world as light and momentary affliction. That's how he characterized his life. How many of us would look at Paul's life and conclude that, yes, that's, those were some light afflictions, Paul. <laughs> well, let me remind you of what Paul went through. I have worked much harder. I've been in prison more frequently, been flogged more severely, and been exposed to death again and again. Five times I received from the Jews 40 lashes minus one, whipped 39 times. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned, three times I was shipwrecked. I I spent a night and a day on the open sea. I've been constantly on the move. I've been in danger from rivers, in danger from bandits, in danger from my own countrymen, in danger from Gentiles, in danger in the city, in danger in the country, in danger at sea, in danger in false brothers. I've labored and toiled and often gone without sleep. I've I've known hunger and thirst and I've, I've gone without food. I've been cold and naked. And he says that's momentary light afflictions. And I doubt any of us have experienced what Paul's experienced. But that's because he had what? The eternal perspective. He can say that because he places all those experiences on a scale and weighs them against another true reality of God's coming kingdom in the eternal state. And that is reality. The never-ending glory of the eternal state to be in the presence of our Savior. And weighed with that, weighed against all the things that we go through in this life, the things of this life are nothing. We can't even begin to comprehend what God has prepared. So whatever your greatest thoughts of glory and heaven are, the Scripture says you, you can't even begin to imagine what God's prepared. You know, when we think about it, what's the difference? It's really one of focus. What are you focusing on? Where are your eyes fixed? And as we examine our focus in Psalm 73, Asaph initially placed an interpretation upon the prosperity of the wicked, an interpretation that plunged him into envy and despair. He wasn't looking at it right. And as a human being, we're always thinking We're always analyzing and evaluating it. We're always seeking to organize, interpret, and explain life. And these interpretations shape how we experience what God has ordained for us. And all our interpretations are based on our system of values. And these values structure the interpretations that shape my reactions and responses to the events of life whether I respond in a God-honoring, Christ-like way or whether I respond in a self-focused, self-centered, sinful way. As Christ states in Matthew chapter 6, you know, we have some kind of treasure. We all do. And where the treasure is, there's your heart's going to be. And whatever is the true functional treasure... That's going to shape your interpretation of life. And thus, 
the experiences that you have and your responses, it's all going to dictate the way that you respond and act in the middle of those circumstances. And again, God often, through trials and tribulations and sufferings and afflictions, does what? He picks us up like that illustration of the sponge. The sponge looks pretty good as long as it's sitting there on the table. looks pretty clean, but you pick it up and you squeeze it. And whatever's inside is going to come out, whether it's clean, fresh water or dirty water out of the toilet. And that's what our hearts are. God picks us up and squeezes us in his providence and his sovereignty and squeezes you in the middle of a trial and circumstances. And what's in there in your heart is going to come out. He's done that in my life. He's done it in yours, I'm sure, too. And he's going to continue to do that till he perfects us into the image of his son. Well, there's two systems of value that we can turn to when we're being squeezed. Interpretations that we make of our lives and what God's doing in the midst of that. And all those systems' values are simply variations of one or two fundamental systems. When you boil it down to it, option number one. Life consists in possessing experiences of things that are seen. You know that old license plate frame of the guy with the Mercedes or BMW that says, you know, he, you know, he dies with the most toys wins. <laughs> what an unhopeful life. <laughs> Is that how you see life? Option number two, life consists in possessing and experiencing things unseen. If you possess Christ, we have all we need, but we don't live like that. It doesn't translate. I have trouble translating that on a regular basis. Obviously, those are two opposing systems. They lead to opposing interpretations of life and what God's doing and finally to radically different agendas for our response depending on how you look at life. We never come to life in the circumstances and our experience in neutral. We just don't. We all have presuppositions. We all have baggage, if you will. We always bring our thoughts, experiences, desires, motives, values of the inner man and our heart. Always interacts with life. Shaping the way that we respond to these things. Asking the question, where are my eyes fixed? And, and not so much the physical aspect of our eyes, though that's certainly a part of it. But where are my inner eyes, if you will? Where's my heart focused? Where is my treasure? What are the focus of my desires, my thoughts, the motives? And the scripture says our hearts are deceitfully wicked. We, we don't even understand sometimes what our own desires and motives are. We need the word of God to expose these things in our life. The interpretations that we actively make are very powerful for they give shape and meaning to our lives and how you respond. Well, recognize what's going on there when you see that in your life. Psalm 73 points out four symptoms of fixing one's eyes on that which is seen. First, if you're focusing on that one way, on what you can see, there's going to be a struggle with envy. Asaph says, for I envied the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked in verse 3. Well, second, when your viewpoint is like that, there's a struggle with confusion. It doesn't make sense. Asaph says, when I tried to understand this, it was oppressive to me. Verse 16, I, I have wrongly concluded that the blessings of God had to do with the present personal 
happiness with a life of burden and common demand and trouble at work doesn't exist. And if it does exist, I'm at odds with God and I have a wrong response. I'm going to look around and conclude that the wrong people are being blessed, God. And Asaph said, I sought to obey you. I sought to do the right thing. I've studied your word. I've shared the gospel with other people. I've looked what's happened to me. Where are you, God? It seems like I'm no better off if I was living like the pagan. Well, third, there's going to be a struggle with discouragement and a lack of motivation. When your eyes are focused on the wrong thing. Asaph says, surely in vain I have kept my heart pure. In vain I have... Wash my hands in innocence. All day long I've been plagued. I've been punished every morning. That's what he felt like when he got up out of bed. I'm being punished another day of punishment. If the goodness of God means that I should experience a life of personal happiness ease, I'm going to lose all motivation for obedience. God, you're not giving me what I want. I lose all motivation to follow him if I don't experience the kind of life as I defined it. You know, personal devotion and prayer evaporate. Attendance at worship with your brothers and sisters in Christ ceases. We withdraw from the contact with God's people. I've been there. I felt like that. What's the point? And finally, there's going to be a struggle with anger. Asaph says, when my heart was grieved and my spirit embittered, I I was senseless and ignorant. I was a brute beast before you, verses 21 and 22. Envy, confusion, discouragement, and anger are all symptoms of our eyes focusing on the created thing. Well, pray for God's grace that we could identify and confess the true treasures of our hearts. You know, most people don't want to deal with issues at the heart level because it's uncomfortable. (laughs) It's not pleasant. Most likely, they don't think in terms of the heart and the inner man at all, let alone have a biblical, scriptural understanding of it. Because most people have an external focus. They talk about the people in their lives, the situations, how they feel. They hope that if somehow those things can be fixed, then they're going to be happy. Fix my circumstances and I'll be happy. Let me escape away from this situation, then everything will be all right. And as I've told my counseling classes for long periods of time, it doesn't matter wherever you go, what? You're taking you with you. (laughs) And if it's an internal heart issue, a change of location is not going to solve it. You could be on a deserted island by yourself and still struggle. Focus on the inner things that's going on. You know, people, we don't like being sad. We don't like being upset. We don't like being discouraged. We don't like being depressed. And and we don't like the situations that produce those kind of feelings in us. But that's not the answer. Identify what's really going on is a critical task because the heart is deceitful, as I've said. Sin is deceitful. We need others to help us break through those walls of deceit so that we can accurately see our hearts. This is what discipleship is for. And so few churches practice true discipleship. It's full of activities and programs, but really no discipleship at the heart level. Well, 
The next step is not only to examine your focus, but examine the conclusions from that focus. Psalm 73, verses 13 through 16. Surely in vain I have kept my heart pure, he writes. In vain I have washed my hands in innocence. All day long I have been plagued. I've been punished every morning. If I had said I will speak thus, I, I would have betrayed this generation of your children. When I tried to understand all of this, it was oppressive to me. He's pouring out his heart. And what do I mean when I said, what conclusions are we drawing from that focus? I mean the functional belief system of how you really live. Again, don't listen to what somebody tells you they believe. Look at their lives because what they actually do tells you what they really believe. Because we all an operating set of assumptions that shape our responses to life. And conclusions are ideas that are believed. Everyone has ideas that, for whatever reason, they assume them to be true. And these assumptions carry a practical behavioral agenda with them. Again, how you live your life, what people see. You know, when I pointed out that one of Asaph's conclusions earlier, surely in vain have I kept my heart pure. In vain I washed my hands in innocence. At verse 13, he's saying, I wasted my time trying to keep my heart pure. It, it's been useless to be careful to obey your word, God. What, what have I received as a result of all my faith and obedience? Look at me, I'm suffering. Well, practical conclusions that it was in vain to worship and serve God. That's what it led it to him at this point in his life. And I'm sure some of you have been there before thinking that. How did Satan put that same conclusion Again, ultimately, satanic attacks of being under, living under these lies. If the Lord takes away Job's hedge of blessing, Job will curse God. He's assuming that everything was based on the external. Take it away, God. You'll see what he's really like. People have always found that conclusion attractive. But all of it's based on the fundamental understanding of what God's doing and his divine providence. You know, most people, when it gets down to it, what they want out of their service to God is just give me a nice husband or a nice wife with nice kids I can take to a restaurant. (laughs) You know, give me a house that the roof doesn't leak and a car that doesn't break and I'll, I'll be happy to serve you. But God's working on something far greater and grander than that. Here's another way to say it. We tend to focus on the good result, but God focused on the process of making us good. That's what God's doing. We're tempted to judge his faithfulness on the basis of how many of our desires for this life he's delivered on. (laughs) But he is working to free us from our bondage to the desires of our sinful nature. This process of trials and suffering is no indication that God has forsaken his promises to us. And therefore, he's not really good. Rather, think about this. The process of trials and loss and afflictions and sufferings that he 
sovereignly ordains for us actually demonstrates his faithful redeeming love for his people. That is so contrary to the way God will not forsake the work of his hands. (laughs) He who began the work will complete it. He's going to finish it. And these experience preaches goodness for they are his means and delivery system, if you will, for his sanctifying work in each of our lives this morning. You know, few see suffering in that way. And I know it's difficult. None of us appreciates it. We can become overwhelmed by personal trials that we feel like we're almost unable to imagine that it's possible to say that God's good and at the same time affirm that he has a purpose for us to endure difficulty. Many are surprised by the trials that are they're facing and contrary to what Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 12. They, they do think that something unusual is going on. They conclude that God has forgotten or forsaken them. Or they conclude that he's not in reality the God they thought him to be. Yet their false conclusions lead them to run away from God rather than to turn toward him. They agree with Asaph that following God is in vain. And their response to God and their situation is directly shaped by their conclusions that they draw because they had the wrong focus. Well, evaluate your own functional conclusions that you're making in life. And there's five fundamental areas of conclusion that you draw from a personal view of your own life. You draw conclusions about your past, things that have happened, about your present situation, what you think is going to happen in the future. You have ways to draw conclusions about yourself. We think more highly of ourselves than we ought to. And we draw conclusions about God and what he's doing. And if the conclusions that we draw don't line up with Scripture and they're not biblical, there's there's little hope that we're going to respond in a Christ-like way to situations in which God has placed us. Understand what it means to think biblically about your life, to see everything, all of Christ for all of life, that God's Word is just not a little segment of my life, but Christ again is my life. Everything revolves around that. Everything you do, you eat or drink, do it to the glory of God. The Bible is what God has given us to make sense out of life. Scripture is meant to exegete life for us, not the other way around. I don't stand in judgment of God's word. God's word stands in judgment of you and me. We're just simply playing God. You know, we use our experiences of our life to dictate what we believe about God, His work and His Word. And here again, there's only two systems. Either Scripture explains my life or something else does. You know, God's Word is the great interpreter of each of our lives. Its conclusions should determine how I organize and explain my experiences. That's that's. That's a critical biblical life skill. That's a a discipling skill. That's a skill set that we need as believers. Because remember, the only easy day was when? Yesterday. And life is hard. You know, many, again, falsely interpret experiences 
their experience becomes more authoritative than the word of God. And each time their experiences seem to contradict the conclusions of Scripture, their confidence in the word weakens. And we've all struggled with times of doubt. But God is faithful. So recognize and confess those things that, you know, perhaps you've blamed God for your own disobedience. And whenever a person who believes that God is in control says, you know, again, they say that, but then you listen to them also and they reveal what's really going on. You know, if only, if only I had this fill in the blank, then I would be able to fill in the blank. He's essentially laying blame at God's feet and often conclude that it's impossible for them to do what God has called them to do because of the evil that they've experienced. People are fully, are full of if-onlys. If only I hadn't grown up in such a terrible family. If only I could afford to have gone to college. If only I had had a loving and understanding husband or wife. If only I'd been part of a church that really loved me. What are you really saying at that point? God, it's your fault. You know, I was ready to obey, but you didn't fulfill your part of the bargain. Well, many have drawn conclusions that not only blame others for their behavior, but also God, blame shifting. That's what Adam did. God is this woman you gave me. You called me to do that. We're great at blame shifting. And by doing that, we oftentimes make our disobedience acceptable to our conscience. Well, really what we got to do is we have to face the idolatrous nature of these conclusions that we're drawing in our hearts, what's really going on. False conclusion, again, exposed treasures on earth. And our, our problem there with, with drawing wrong conclusions is not simply a philosophical or a theological problem in some textbooks. It's got moral roots. The practical conclusions that God is not good is fundamentally rooted in a love for the things of the world if you want to boil it down to it. A desire that he would use his power to deliver those things that I want to me, and I'm just simply disappointed that this has not happened yet, according to my time schedule. That's idolatry. That's rooted in exchanging worship and service of the creator for worship and service of the created thing. Romans one twenty five. It's rooted in loving the world and the things that are in the world rather than loving the Father, 1 John chapter 2. We need to treat this as a, a more significant, genuine problem that we face than the correction of some wrong belief. It's deeper than that. We, we need to see the particular wrong beliefs that are rooted in a more fundamental problem, this issue of the heart, the root and patterns of this personal idolatry, which which need to be exposed so they can be confessed and repented of and turned away from. Think of this. James chapter 4. James is discussing human conflict and he, he grounds conflict in desires that rule the heart. You want something, but you don't get it. Verse 2. He moves in to describe how a heart fixed on the things of this world relates to God. These desires shape our relationship to God. 
what will declare to me that he really is a good God. I've set my heart on these things. I'm not getting them. James puts it this way. When you ask, you don't receive because you ask with wrong motives that you may spend it and get your own pleasures, a self-focused, self-directed. James goes on, you adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world is hatred towards God? In verse 4, the whole idolatrous system is rooted in spiritual adultery. And this is the picture we get from the nation of Israel through the Old Covenant. The whole system of, of false focus, false interpretations, and false conclusions leaves a person disappointed, discouraged, with his life, disillusion with God and with life and unmotivated for obedience. And besides all of that, the system is driven by spiritual adultery. It's driven by exchanging the love of God for the love of created things. Well, now, viewing life from the perspective of eternity. I know this is a longer message. It's a long psalm, but I... Please bear with me in patience. I'm I'm getting towards the end. And I knew it would take some time, but viewing life from eternity, and this is the application where we're going here. Psalm 73, verses 17 through 24. Till I entered the sanctuary of God, then I understood their final destiny. Surely you placed them on slippery gown. You cast them down to ruin. How suddenly are they destroyed, completely swept away by terrors, as a dream when one awakens. So when you arise, O Lord, you will despise them as fantasies. When my heart was grieved and my spirit embittered, I was senseless and ignorant. I was a brute beast before you. Yet I am always with you. You hold me by my right hand. You guide me with your counsel, and afterward you will take me into glory. So, Psalm 73 takes a dramatic turn here at verse 17. And Asaph begins to consider eternity, and he starts to look at life from that perspective. And here's the powerful point towards which this psalm builds and culminates. Eternity confronts us with the delusion of the permanence of the created thing. Without that perspective, the believer looks at his little pile of created goods and compares it with someone else's huge pile, and is angry and bitter, envious, covetous, discouraged. But how different is it when you look at the same picture and realize that what the wicked has acquired is already in the process of fading away while God has given him an inheritance that will never fade? That's what he's given to the believer. The thief can't steal it. It's not going to rust away. The moth's not going to eat it. You know, as I've told other people before, for the believer, this is as bad as it's going to ever get. And it could get worse. But this is as bad. This is as close to hell as you'll ever be. But for the non-believer, this is as good as it's ever going to get. The closest they'll ever be to glory in the eternal state. And that's what Asaph is recognizing. He uses two metaphors to depict this delusion of this permanence. First, he says that the ungodly are like people standing on a slippery slope. They they may be standing now, but they're going down. And second, Asaph likens the life of the wicked to a dream or a fantasy. Dreams seem like they're real, 
You've woken up in the morning and thought it was real what you were dreaming during the middle of the night, but dreams are not the real thing. Such is the prosperity of the unbeliever. It's, 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 it's really a dream. And these two metaphors point us toward what God is doing as he expresses his redemptive love for his people. What's God working on? He's working hard to provide us, you know, is he working hard to provide us with the biggest pile of stuff that we would experience worldly happiness? Is that what God's doing? If so, he's, he's miserably failed in most of our lives. Some would counter that and say it's only because you don't have enough faith. And I'm telling you right now, that's heresy. Those kind of teachings that have hurt perhaps the Lord's people with that kind of false teaching. Even worse, he has used his creative and redemptive power to give us only that which is doomed to pass away. Is that what you want? No. Would that be the work of a good God? Would a good God motivate us to hope in things that only temporary by their very nature? Would he want us to stand on a slippery slope? Would he want us our lives to be passing fantasies of our sleep? Would he be good if he did anything less than to confront our delusions of the permanence of this world and expose those things? And that's what trials and suffering and afflictions and death and loss do. These trials confront us with what is true all along. They explode the myth that this is all there is and the goal of this life is to get as much of it as you can. Remember the old beer commercial. You only go around once in life, grab all the gusto. The lies of the world. And that infects the church. You know, you think about in your trial, are you confronted with the fact that the most blessed of human situations and experiences pass away, sometimes quite suddenly. Our life is as a vapor. You know, I I think of Neil Trowbridge, for those that knew him, playing golf one day and the next day he's gone with a heart, heart attack, sudden. Walked out that door. His wife said, I never thought it would be the last time I'd see him on this earth. We don't know. God does. He holds our lives. And more importantly, as I suffer in the midst of the trials, I, I, you figure out how much you really believe the lie. That your hope is placed in the permanent things of created things and how tightly I've held on to those things in this world. And more important, I I realize that God and the meaning of the gospel of Christ and what's really important and the real reality of the world. So rather than trials and suffering and afflictions and sadness, rather than those things in my mind challenging the truth of God's love and the justice of God, they actually end up preaching them when you look at it right. It's because of his justice and love that God will not have me believe that the lie that life is found in the things of this world. He won't do that. It's his love, Christ's love for us, that makes him ever faithful to call me back from hope in the created things to hope in him alone. His love causes me to lay away 
for me the zeal of an eternal weight of glory that far outweighs any painful experience that I might have in this present life. God's at work delivering us to that which is eternal. He's at work changing us at the level of the inner man through the new covenant and the new heart. It's our, our lives are His workroom, and He's not going to leave there till He's done. That's His promise from the Almighty. A God who does not lie. No one can thwart His purpose. To do anything else would be unjust and unloving of our God. Well, why do we struggle? Why do we give up hope at times? Why do we question the faithfulness of God? Why do we think we're enduring more than we can bear? Why do we look for any escape that we can find? Why are we... Why are we not comforted by God's presence and His promises at times? You know, why does future hope still leave us at times envious and angered and embittered? And the answer is idolatry. The degree that I hold on to the created thing, thinking that life can be found in them, to the degree of any situation that removes my heart, desires, if you will, will seem unbearable to me. Anything that's going to take that away from me. The God who has placed me in the circumstances will appear unfaithful and unkind when he tries to take my idol away. And his presence will offer me little comfort. I've lost my idol. You know, my struggle is not actually with what I'm able to bear or my struggles. It's, it's not really with God's faithfulness. My struggles are really how my idol Idolatry affects the way I live and think. I cry out at times, surely in vain I've kept my heart pure. I grumble, come angry, unbelieving, because of the times I live for an idol. That's the heart of it. It's Well, when you focus on the eternal riches of redemption... And this is the end. Verses 23 through 28. Yes, I am always with you. You hold me by my right hand. You guide me with your counsel. And afterward, you will take me into glory. Whom am I in heaven but you? And beside you, I desire nothing on earth. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Those who are far from you will perish. You destroy all who are unfaithful to you. But as for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the sovereign Lord my refuge. I will tell you, I will tell of all your deeds. And if I'm to concentrate on the things of this world and I'm not to compare my pile of stuff with the world's stuff or the wicked, what then am I going to concentrate? When you leave this morning, what are you going to concentrate on? What do you have that makes you really rich? The question can be answered with a single word, and that's Christ. You have Christ if you've turned from your sin and placed your trust in Him alone, trusting in His perfect righteousness. What makes me rich is not circumstances or a collection of possessions. I'm rich because I have a relationship with a person who is always with me and will never lie to me. 
I'm held by his right hand, just as Asaph was. And I'm guided by his counsel. I have his word. And when my heart fails, and it does fail, he is my strength. He's taking me toward eternal glory day by day. And it's getting closer. (laughs) Young people, if you can learn this today, you'll be way ahead of most of us. Believe me, once you get older, this becomes more in focus when you realize you're in the fourth quarter. You know, and the game's coming to an end. But young people don't grasp this this morning. There's nothing on earth, nothing on earth I desire besides Christ. You are my refuge. How many of us here can honestly say, well, all I need out of life is Christ. That's all I want. God is near and therefore there is, there is hope for each of us this morning while God is far off from the wicked and therefore they will perish. They will come under judgment and condemnation if they do not repent. And the question is, can you have joy in the midst of a storm as God becomes what they desire and what you desire rather than God being the means to some other end of your own desire? That psalm analyzes that desire. It graphically depicts how our desires set the agenda for our lives. It explains how personal desires shape the interpretations that I make about God, myself, and my situation. It reveals how these ruling, mastering desires at times lead me to focus on one thing while virtually ignoring the other, the real thing. Psalm 73, this is a powerful warning. that it confronts us with how essential these truths are for making biblical sense out of our lives and fashioning practical biblical responses. And notice how that psalm concludes. A new way of viewing life always leads to visibly changed actions. In this case, the words expressing confident faith replace words of grumbling complaint. He was complaining. Now he's praising. He's putting off, putting on. Ephesians, what we've learned through our expository study of that book. What's God working on? That we would put our hope and our trust in Him and in Him alone. And what in the final analysis do you have to offer to anybody that's suffering from the things that we go through also? Do you just simply offer ways to make life work so they can attain the things that they want? So they can be happy? No, we offer something far greater and much, much different than ten steps to a happy marriage. What we have to offer is Christ and its gospel of peace. So that he becomes their identity. He is their riches, their strength, their future, and their eternal hope. Because Christ is what they need. And that turns us to the Lord's table. In that we have a representation of the gospel. That Christ redeemed his people from their sin and he's making them spotless and blameless.